Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 9th of March 2020 and this is episode 151. On today's programme, Andrea Hetherington talks about her research into soldiers who deserted in Britain during the Great War. I spoke to Andrea from her home in Leeds. Andrea, welcome back to the podcast. Could you start by reminding us of your background and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, I've always had an interest in, in the First World War since I was a child. I was born in Hartlepool, a town which clearly has a significant role to play in the, in the war. Um, so it's all, always been there for me. Though I've had a rather different career as a, as a criminal defence lawyer um, so far anyway, uh, I became involved in the Legacies of War programme at the University of Leeds and I was lucky enough to meet some amazing experts in the field who were very encouraging to me and, and their support resulted in me starting to write books on, on the Great War. Um, Peter Little asked me to write a chapter of an anthology he was producing for Pen and Sword and that eventually led to my, my last book, Britain's First World War, Widows, The Forgotten Legion, which you were kind enough to speak to me about when it was published in 2018. So I haven't quite, I haven't exhausted my uh, my interest in it just yet. So we're, we're moving on to this new topic. And that topic is UK-based deserters. Now, why did you become interested in UK-based deserters? Well, my work's often sparked by my own curiosity about things that I find whilst conducting research on another topic entirely. And that, that's the case with this as well. In the case of these home front deserters, it came about while I was researching the, the widow's book, because when war widows uh, remarried, they would get a lump sum of their pension a year or two years, depending on what time of the war they were remarried. And it seems that there were these men going around the country who were marrying war widows deliberately to get their hands on their money and then running off as soon as that bit of the, the transaction was done. And further research showed that these men were very often deserters from the British Armed Forces. So that got me thinking, firstly, what what were these men doing? What was the kind of scale of this? And also just to try and answer the question of how does a man survive in what had become essentially a military state when he's on the run from the military? And there's been a lot of work done on the 306 men shot for desertion on the Western Front and subsequently pardoned, but nothing really on those who deserted in the UK. So I thought it would be an interesting challenge to try and find out about these men and their lives. And it certainly proved to be challenging. Now, you're looking at desertion in the UK. So what exactly was the classification for desertion? And what was the punishment for a soldier or sailor who was caught? Well, the Manual of Military Law 1914 is really the authoritative text as far as dealing with military offences are concerned. And it rather unhelpfully defined desertion as deserting or attempting to desert his majesty's service, which doesn't really help you. Um, but essentially the offence is all in the intention of the soldier. There's a distinction between desertion and being absent without leave. And the distinction is usually a very fine one. So if he left his unit with no intention to return, or if he left it to avoid doing some specific duty and went back after the need to do that had passed, then he'd be guilty of desertion. If it wasn't the case of that, then he might just be guilty of absence. But other aspects of the offence, like the distance he'd travelled, the time he'd been missing, they were just evidential aids to a tribunal in deciding whether he deserted or not. 
the Manual of Military Law specified that he shouldn't be charged with desertion unless there was evidence of such intention to quit or to avoid this uh, onerous duty. And if not, he should be charged with the lesser offence of absence, which would be, and there is a proper definition of being absent without leave, which is defined as such short absence unaccompanied by disguise, concealment or other suspicious circumstances as occurs when a soldier does not return to his corps or duty at the proper time, but on returning he's able to show that he didn't intend to quit the service or evade the performance of some service so important as to render the offence desertion. So as I say, the distinction's a fine one, but it's continually pleaded by soldiers apprehended at home during the war because the difference in penalties was considerable. Um, so in absentee, you would liable to get no more than 28 days detention. You could be docked pay. You might get a bit of field punishment. Technically, as a deserter, you could be shot. Although that didn't happen for deserters on the home front, except in some very special circumstances. But usually you would get a, a sentence of imprisonment. The sentences of imprisonment, they were quite often commuted um, or suspended as, as the war went on because it, it was it was really there was a real need to get these men back to the the front as soon as possible. Uh, so, but the death penalty for desertion remained on the the army statute books until 1930. Being absent without leave, they carried a lesser lesser sentence, and quite often men would be court-martialed for desertion, but acquitted of desertion and found guilty of absence instead which allowed the, the military to deal with them more leniently. Another punishment, which was specifically applied to regular army soldiers, was that all of your service prior to your desertion would be wiped out. So if you've signed up to serve for a certain number of years and you then desert halfway through, the clock starts again and you still owe the army those years. So for regular army soldiers, that was another big, uh, big punishment for desertion. And was there any difference between deserting in France and deserting in the UK? Yeah, massive difference. Massive difference. None of the ordinary deserters who deserted in the UK were shot. If you deserted in France, you were much more likely to be given a death sentence. Although, as we know, only about 12% of the death sentences ever imposed were actually carried out. Now, the rest of them were commuted to, to periods of imprisonment or, or were suspended. Um, if you deserted at home, you were looking usually at periods of imprisonment with or without hard labour or, at the worst, penal servitude. But there were a category of deserters who deserted in the UK and were shot or were arrested in the UK and were shot. There weren't many of them, but there were some who had actually overstayed their leave. So they were officially in the UK, but then they'd not gone back at the time they were supposed to. If their battalion was still on the Western Front, they were in danger of being shot because what would happen would be that they wouldn't be court-martialed in this country. They'd be taken back to their battalion and court-martialed there. And there are a number of those who were actually shot. Another category were men who were arrested in the UK but had actually deserted in France, managed to get themselves across the Channel. And again, some of those men were actually taken back to France and Belgium and shot. So... There was a distinction, but there were also some that were uh, fell foul of, of that uh, that distinction because of um, whatever circumstances were, were prevailing at the time. So why did servicemen desert? I know that's a huge question. Yeah, well, the reasons for a man's desertion are as varied as the reasons for his original enlistment, certainly when that enlistment was voluntary. Family trouble, money trouble, 
issues within his existing battalion, bullying, conscience and criminality all play a part in, in the story. Some men had been to the front and served with distinction, then decided they'd had enough, while some would return to the front after their punishment for desertion and again serve with distinction. Some had no intention of serving in the first place and had listed with the sole purpose of deserting and taking the king's shilling with them. Some had refused to join up at all and tried to hide from the military once conscription was introduced. Others began their army careers full of patriotic fervour but found the reality of conditions in the training camps to be contrary to their expectations. Some absented themselves in protest the treatment of their wives by the war office when separation allowance wasn't being paid out. And then as the war went on, some who'd seen active service felt they'd done their bit and it was time for others to take a turn. And the, the conditions in the camps at the beginning of the war were appalling. Um, flooding, awful, tented accommodation, no uniforms, no proper weapons. Um, and some people just, just weren't prepared to put up with that. And many of those who'd voluntarily enlisted were trade unionists and were used to dealing with disputes with the management by withdrawing their labour. So they took the same approach here too. Though, of course, army discipline is quite a different thing. And there was a mass desertion by some battalions of the Durham Light Infantry at Halton Park in Buckinghamshire in October 1914, where lots of them just wandered off because they'd had enough. Um, so there were a lot of different reasons. There was also a culture uh, of absenteeism, of taking French leave, as it was called, if you couldn't get what you wanted. So men were regularly absenting themselves for a few days rather than wait their turn for official leave. And they were often prepared to put up with the fairly minor punishments that were quite often dished out for this. So being confined to barracks, docked some pay or a bit of field punishment. And desertion is really just one end of, the, of that spectrum of, um, of absenteeism um, uh, and, and protest. So what was the scale of the problem of desertion and did this change as the war went on? Well, the full scale of the problem is difficult to evaluate because we have the statistics published after the war which show the numbers of court-martials for absent desertion and being absent during the war years. But it doesn't really give the full picture because firstly, not everyone who ran off would face a court-martial when they returned because lesser punishments could be meted out which wouldn't need the officer to take the matter to a court-martial. And of course, not everybody who deserted was caught. But... Between the outbreak of war and the end of September 1918, there are 114,502 courts martial held in respect of officers and men from the British and colonial forces at home, and 65,000 of those were prosecutions for desertion and absence without leave. Now, that's likely to be a considerable underestimate of the numbers who did absent themselves during this period, because as I've said, not all would have been court martialed and some would never have been caught. Um, the same report shows that the loss to the British Army alone from desertion during the war was nearly 115,000 men up till January 1919, though it was also claimed that many of those had actually rejoined the services. Again, if you just look at one small aspect of desertion, so the failure to answer your call-up papers when conscription came in, statistics show that 93,000 men had failed to turn up to those notices by July 1916. So that's 30% of the total enlistment notices which were issued. Another source of information about the scale of the problem can be found outside of those official publications. For example, in July 1915, the Chief Constable of Manchester was complaining uh, to the government that he was getting pestered for 200 requests for information per day about deserters either from his area 
or believed to have been at large in his area. And at that period of time, 1915, there were real concerns to the army about the number of men who weren't coming back from leave or who weren't returning to service after they'd been treated um, at home for wounds. And a concerted effort was made to trace them. But those who were found and were, were willing to go back were just given travel warrants and told to go back. They weren't necessarily arrested and court-martialed, so again, they wouldn't appear on the official statistics. Again, a lot of those men were trained soldiers, and that was a valuable commodity at that time. So the emphasis was on taking them back into the fold rather than punishing them. Obviously, numbers of desertion goes up with the number of people that are actually in the army, because that increases so proportionally the number of people that desert will, will also increase. Um, but it, it was steady throughout the, the war, this, uh, this number of people who would just wander off. If I deserted from my unit in the UK, how easy would it be to, quote, disappear? Not too difficult at all if you were very determined about it. It was remarkably easy to absent yourself from duty. I mean, many camps and barracks had quite lax security, so soldiers were coming and going as they pleased. Others had well-used escape routes. Robert Graves writes, people remember, of the men in his command getting out through a tunnel under one of the huts when they wanted to go home. You could bribe the sergeant who gave out the leave passes. I think they were going, one person I found was saying that you could get one for 10 shillings. Or you could forge your own. A lot of that was going on as well. Of course, this is a very different time, and identification is not as straightforward as it is now. Photographic identification was virtually unheard of. Passports weren't even required for foreign travel at the start of the war. So it was very difficult to force someone to prove their identity. Men also enlisted in false names for various reasons, so sometimes just reverting to your own name was enough. You could move to another part of the country, start to use a different name, and no one would be any the wiser. Once conscription started, this became more difficult if you were of military age, but because of the large numbers of categories of exemption available to people, these were exploited to the full, and every time the government introduced a new piece of identification or a form or a badge or an armband, to show you were exempt from service, there was immediately a black market in selling those armbands, forms, badges, and also the cottage industry in forging them. So some men just went home to their families, to coal cellars and attics all over the country, took on a new role of hiding sons and husbands who should have been in uniform. Some went further afield, America or Ireland, or some hid out in more remote areas of England, Scotland and Wales. Some even hid in plain sight, in uniform, going around the country pretended to be wounded heroes. And some of those men remarkably were being employed in recruiting officers themselves. And so what, what sort of actions or proactive actions did the state take to catch these deserters? Well, the first tactic is that once you're declared a deserter, all your pay and allowances stop. So not only your pay, but any separation allowance to your wife will stop in the hope that this will force them to come back voluntarily. The man's details are given to the police and they're published in the Police Gazette, which had pages and pages every week, names and descriptions of deserters, their place of origin, any distinguishing marks, etc. Um, and copies of the Gazette were held and were sent to recruiting offices as well to try and find these men. The police would go and visit their family homes periodically to see if they'd returned there. A close eye was kept on railway stations and cooperation in that respect was given by railway employees who'd report any suspicious characters or men trying to travel without the necessary passes. Once conscription was introduced, the police would occasionally raid theatres and other places of entertainment in large towns and cities 
In an attempt to find deserters and men who'd failed to answer their call-up papers, the military police would work hand-in-hand with them, but it wasn't easy to find men if they were very determined to stay away. The military police were also very, very few in number at the outbreak of the war. There was only around 400 of them. They didn't have the manpower to make concerted efforts to catch these men. Industrial cities were particularly poorly served. Sheffield, for example, didn't have any military police until 1917. And by August 1918, there were an additional 4,000 military policemen on the home front. Another way of uh, trying to, to flush out deserters was bringing in penalties for those who harboured them. So penalties of imprisonment were introduced for people who harboured deserters. And also for employers who gave men jobs post-conscription without satisfying themselves that the employee was exempt from military service. So women all over the country were going to jail for letting their husbands and sons hide at home. Police sometimes found deserters by noting the family's food purchasing had increased. Or in one story I found that the wife was suddenly getting takeout beer from the local pub. And lo and behold that turned out to be for her husband who would uh, come home and he should have been uh, in khaki. Now we come to the interesting issue of Ireland. Now, with the Easter Rising in Ireland in 1916 and the subsequent unrest in 1917-18, how did these factors shape desertion in terms of, obviously, Ireland didn't have conscription? And Well, as you've noted, Ireland, though part of the British Isles at this stage, both, both parts of Ireland, wasn't subject to conscription. So it was an attractive destination for a man who didn't want to serve in the armed forces. And there was a steady stream of men going to Ireland throughout the war for this reason. But your eligibility for conscription was not about nationality. It was about whether you could be classed as ordinarily resident in Great Britain at the time the National Register was compiled in August 1915. So if you were an Irishman, but at that time resident in Liverpool, for example, it didn't matter that you'd gone back to Ireland in 1916. You were fair game for conscription to the British Army. And there were a whole host of cases coming before the courts in 1916 in Ireland and in England to decide whether or not a man was ordinarily resident in Britain. What about touring actors, seasonal agricultural workers, etc., etc.? When is an Irishman not an Irishman, one newspaper headline put it. Now, when it was feared that conscription would be introduced to Ireland itself, some Irishmen decided it was a good time to move to America. There was nothing stopping them from doing that until an infamous incident at the Liverpool docks in November 1915 when hundreds of Irish men were prevented from travelling to America on a boat called the Saxonia because the, the crew of that ship excuse me, refused to work if they were allowed on board. Ireland always has its fair share of British escapees from conscription, commonly referred to as flyboys. Again, concerted efforts were made to retrieve these men in 1918. Um, Of course, historically, the British Army had always had a good supply of Irish recruits, though the percentages were were down somewhat at the time of the outbreak of the Great War. It's probably around 9% of the British Army were were Irish in origin. Uh, Previously, it had been as high as 22%, I think, towards the end of the 19th century. So despite the struggle for Irish independence, as you're aware, many Irish people supported the war. There were anti-German riots on the streets, just as there were in England, Scotland and Wales. And recruitment drives on both sides of the independence uh, debate. So around 140,000 Irishmen enlisted during the war and as many as 300,000 served. Of course, the majority of those already being soldiers when the war broke out. Clearly, certain parts of Ireland were less enthusiastic than others. It was easier for men to go missing there. British soldiers would also be induced to desert because, of course, there were quite a number of British soldiers in Ireland at the time. They were induced to desert and sell their rifles 
two Irish paramilitary groups, essentially, both those for British rule um, and those for independence. There are examples of deserters being rescued by what turns out to be members of, of the IRA, essentially, members of Sinn Féin. There was a famous incident at a place called Burtonport where two deserters were being retrieved by an escort and the escorts were, were set upon by a, a group at the station and the deserters were uh, were released. Those men were court-martialed for that, the escorts, um, and were punished for losing those deserters because of their, their version of events wasn't believed and they were, they were felt to have just been incompetent and or drunk at the time. But many years later, it transpired that it looks as though that actually was an organised Sinn Féin um, escape, um, a, a rescue of those men. Also, there's a vast expanses in Ireland for people to hide in, where nobody's really going to look for you. Um, and also certain higher profile um, anti-British elements, can we say, um, had farms and businesses where they'd happily employ deserters. So it, it was tricky to uh, to find people if, if they went missing in in Ireland. Um, but it was certainly a very difficult situation for the, the British government because Ireland was a difficult situation enough without adding conscription into the mix. And of course, they never actually did, although the, the act was on the statute books, it, it was never actually uh, imposed. But but the issue of people running away to Ireland was, was a big problem throughout the war. And then what happened to those people who were, quote, still in a state of desertion once the armistice had been declared? Well, technically, they, they could be arrested. Obviously, they were still deserters. And I think quite a lot of the statistics of court martials from 1919 will have been men that had been missing for a while. Um, but eventually, the army pretty much gave up looking for them. Um, they found they were dishonorably discharged because it just wasn't worth worth their while at the end of the day. But if you were in a state of desertion initially, you didn't get your medals. If you look in the medal rolls of, of any of the regiments um, that, that took part in, in the war, towards the end of those medal rolls, there are pages and pages of names, and it'll say not eligible for medals. Um, and the reason for that was that they were in a state of desertion. If they were known to be deserters, they would have problems in getting employment sometimes. High-profile deserters of, of conscience certainly had, had problems in getting employment. Arthur Horner, for example, later became General Secretary of, of the National Union of Mine Workers. He was one who went to Ireland. He tried to avoid conscription, firstly by working under a false name. Then he went to Ireland, was part of the Irish Citizen Army, but he came back to Wales in 1918, was arrested and sent to prison. He only managed to get employment after the war was over by the force of his union in Wales. And when he took that job up on his release from custody, he had to move his family several times due to bomb threats against his life because he was seen as a, as a shirker. So there was this, this anti-desertion feeling um, people had, um, and it did make it more difficult for men to, to get employment um, if they were known to have deserted during the war. It also is the reason why memoirs of, of these kind of men are so few on, on the ground because it's not the kind of thing you're going to be boasting about in the famous poster what did you do in the great war daddy well the answer well i sort of did it for a bit and then i had enough and, and i deserted wasn't wasn't really a popular one and finally andrew where can people learn more about your research into deserters 
Well, uh, my book, Deserters of the First World War, is going to be published by Pen and Sword later this year. I don't have a date at this precise moment in time, but that is coming out later this year. So everyone looks out for that. Um, I hope they'll enjoy reading it. Andrea, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.